0: Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens.
1: And I'm Paige Lambermont.
0: Joining us today to discuss their new paper, The Truth About Natural Gas, A Wellspring for the U.S. and Global Energy Future, is Jason Hayes and Dr. Tim Nash. Jason Hayes is the Director of Environmental Policy for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Dr. Tim Nash is Vice President Emeritus and Director of the McNair Center for the Advancement of Free Enterprise and Entrepreneurship, and the McNair Endowed Chair in Free Market Economics at Northwood University. Jason, Dr. Nash, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. So I want to start with a little bit of a conversation about the history of natural gas. Um, Occasionally, I hear people make the claim that the shale revolution was actually the result of government. Policy and specifically government industrial policy. Um, basically, these people try to make the case that you know a lot of the f- the funding for the research for uh, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing came from government. Um, but in your guys' paper, you push back at that and you explain that it's um, it was our institutions that allowed the shale revolution to happen. And so you write. The rise of fossil fuels and the subsequent powering of American civilization are not the result of government industrial policy. Rather, the surge in oil and gas production seen across the U.S. is a result of the competitive free market and the entrepreneurship it fosters. Discoveries of shale deposits and breakthroughs in technology have unlocked decades worth of resources to power the United States, ever increasing energy needs, all while reducing costs, both economic and environmental. So to start, Ken, maybe this is a question for Dr. Nash first here. Um, Can you start by talking about American economic institutions? What is it about the United States that allowed the shale revolution to happen here?
2: I think that the the United States is unique in the sense, uh, Alex, that um, two things. One, we have, uh, as Brandeis said, our 50 laboratories of democracy. So that, um, in many of these cases, it's state law that takes precedent over a national law that many countries, uh, have to abide by. So as an example, you know, many laws in Canada regulate energy across the country. Whereas in the United States, you have, uh, state laws that take precedent. And if you look at the neighbors to the south of us, uh, south of uh, Michigan and Ohio, it was uh really a lot of uh, activity by state law and by by uh, state regulation that allowed for a dramatic boom in hydraulic fracturing and that took the state of ohio from producing uh less than 3% of its electricity from natural gas to today in 2022 uh, the state of ohio produces over 40% of its natural gas uh, or of its electricity from natural gas, and that truly came about with the uh, hydraulic fracturing revolution, where the market opportunity was there, and the state law uh, allowed it to take place in some cases, in spite of federal laws. Do you think that the
1: uh, the United States's unique system of property and of mineral rights was also uh, crucial to that development? Oh i, I think you... i think
2: absolutely I, I do think though sometimes uh, uh our um our federal government tends to that tends to in some cases uh be uh dependent on the administration and you know, if you look at um the biden administration is much less friendly uh uh to using uh uh the opportunity to uh uh to uh mine on uh, as an example on federal lands but but in general the answer is yes
3: Yeah, and even building on what Tim said, the things that we wrote about in our paper looked at a few examples of the companies that actually were doing this work. So you have Mitchell Energy and Devon Energy, who were the early leaders in this uh, development of these technologies. It wasn't a government agency that started doing this work. It was companies like Mitchell in Texas and um, Devon that were doing in the Barnett Shale that were doing this work. And they were spending a lot of their own money they were doing trial and error and they were really fighting their way through trying to figure out how do we make this work and so it was those companies that were doing that that difficult work and they were the ones that were actually making the difference not some federal government or even a state government like the tim's right about state state laws make it possible for those com- companies to actually do this work but it wasn't government agencies that were doing it it was private industry
0: Why is it important for people to have access to affordable and reliable energy? And um, what role does natural gas play in providing that for energy consumers?
3: So, the value of having reliable, affordable electricity right now, you can see um, being lived out by people in Europe when there are restrictions on energy supply that have been largely driven by government policy, initially associated with shutting down a lot of the big coal plants that uh, europe had relied on because of climate change concerns and green energy policies and then also um really unmerited fear over the use of nuclear energy they were uh you know after the fukushima accident a lot of governments like uh germany and france france still uses a lot of nuclear but even france was pushing to close down some of their nuclear plants. Germany was trying to get rid of all of them. The UK and several other countries, Germany included, were shutting down their big coal plants. And they just left themselves kind of at the mercy of the weather and Russian gas supplies, because when they closed down a coal plant, they would start to trade it out with Russian gas, where they would try to build wind and solar, especially Europe, uh, sorry, Germany's energy venda program which was going to you know green all of their energy supply and they spent according to researchers like michael schellenberger they they spent you know over 500 million dollars 500 billion sorry um doing this over a period of years almost to decades and what they've done is they haven't changed their emissions profile at all they've made their electricity double or even triple in price depending on where they are and so when you have something like Russian aggression going on in Ukraine and the countries around the world respond, then you have a, a restriction on the supply of gas and you're left with wind and solar. Okay, well, the wind stops blowing or the sun isn't shining like it does every night or when the cloud comes over and they have a lull in wind speeds, some of them lasting you know five days to a week or more then you're you have literally hundreds of millions of people who are stuck they have no options and so you get this prices start going through the roof people can't afford to buy uh, electricity and then what do they do well that, right now they're either finding local deposits of coal or something that they can burn in their old coal stoves that are still left over from you know distant history or they're going out and cutting down trees and they're trying to heat their homes with firewood so we're seeing you know kind of a reverse or slingshot a backhanded effect where uh air pollution is starting to go up people are can't afford their energy you know all of these things start snowballing and so that's you know one way of explaining why is it so important that people have this reliable affordable electricity well if you don't this happens and then what we're hoping we don't get to is that people end up freezing in the dark
1: I think that's a great point. Venda in particular has just been such a dramatic policy failure. I've been writing on the situation in Germany pretty consistently. And at every turn, there's the chance to stop closing these plants as they're running out of electricity. And they've just been willfully choosing not to do so. Um, It was especially awful because they did an analysis of their own plants after Fukushima, found that they were perfectly safe, and then said, never mind, we're closing them anyway. And just right. the lack of logic that yeah, exactly. causes that is baffling.
3: In uh, Germany and the UK across Europe, is they're shutting down their coal plants, but they're mothballing them. So you see yeah. all across these countries, the UK, Netherlands, uh, the Czech Republic, Germany, and a few others, when they're getting stressed like this in the winter they're actually bringing those old coal plants back online and compare that to what we're doing here in North America, where we're retaining some of our old natural gas plants, but we're tearing out rail sidings and imploding, tearing down uh, boilers for the old coal plants. And we're leaving ourselves in a situation where we could be facing the same problem where we have extreme cold or extreme heat but we don't have the coal boilers anymore to bring them back online which is at least what they're doing in in europe so as bad as europe's situation is they they at least retained those plants we're not doing that that's a great point
0: And we're starting to see uh, the impact of high energy prices in Europe sort of ripple across the economy. I think just about every single day I hear or read a headline about uh, just the other day it was Volkswagen stopped plans to build a new uh, manufacturing facility. Um, So obviously the the role energy plays in an economy uh, is an input into just about everything that we do. Um, these things, uh, ripple across the economy and, uh can be quite problematic. Steering us back to the paper though. One thing that I encounter, and I'm sure Jason, you encounter quite a bit in your work, and maybe you could talk a little bit about is, uh, the role natural gas plays in the economy beyond just electricity though. Obviously natural gas has a lot of other uses that don't typically associate, uh, with, uh, uh, with it um, that a lot of people don't know about. So can you just talk about the importance of natural gas for modern life beyond just its uses uh, on generating electricity?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So in our paper, we discussed some of this, the the other uses of gas. They include, um, I mean, there was a section on them being used to produce the plastics that we all rely on to keep our food safe and fresh and also for medical treatments. I mean, many of the, you know, the medicines that we receive or the, you know, like even just an IV bag or any of those kind of things are produced using um, hydrocarbons and petrochemicals. Uh, we also talked about transportation being a large or having an increasing role uh, with natural gas, especially as related to, um, you know, big machinery or Uh, mass transit uh, increasingly things like city buses and that can be using uh, natural gas and what that does is it natural gas burns cleaner than diesel fuels do so you don't have the issues with particulate matter and some of those other problems so definitely cleaner to use cng or compressed natural gas in those situations we also talked about um you know, in addition to providing low-cost energy and the things we've already discussed, it's one of the the key reasons why we've been able to produce as much food as we do. So natural gas is a primary constituent of the fertilizers that we use. And um, what uh, my co-authors wrote in the paper was that as much as half of the world's population now we're at around four billion people on the planet owe their existence. To the use of natural gas-based fertilizers, so without those fertilizers helping us to grow the food that we do cheaply and efficiently, there would literally be billions of people left to starve.
2: You know, and and on top of what uh, what Jason just noted, you know, in in terms of the question, Alex, we uh, we have a, a chart that uh, notes over six thousand items. That are either vital uh, to the economy that have natural gas and or oil as the key feedstock, and uh, you know we're here in Midland, both the Mackinac Center and Northwood, and it's the world headquarters for Dow, and it's the uh, it's the second largest uh, location for manufacturing and people uh, for DuPont in the world, and so there, there's a lot of use of uh especially natural gas as a feedstock uh to make everything from inputs for fertilizer to medical devices as uh as uh, Jason noted to um you know little league batting helmets and uh and you know everything from uh synthetic fibers to um you know I, I've read that as much as 60% of all pharmaceuticals uh, have either natural gas oil is a key feedstock in in their production so you know you, again you you look at an automobile and you sit down in an automobile and uh, you know the plastics on the dashboard and uh and the uh the, the the wiring for the copper wire that goes throughout the automobile uh you know there's just uh probably uh, we think about um you know gasoline powering an automobile. But we forget about all the component parts that uh, have a uh, uh, a natural gas uh, derivative to uh, put together an automobile. So it's uh, I mean, literally, you can argue that uh, uh, petrochemicals, truly, and especially natural gas, in
1: many ways, make the world go round. That's a great point. There are so many tangible benefits um, from natural gas, like physical things that it creates, but. Um there's one more less tangible uh, benefit that i I want to hear your your opinion on. So um you talked about the intermittency of wind and solar on the grid a bit ago, and one of the most tan or intangible benefits of natural gas that we don't always give it credit for is that it makes the intermittency of wind and solar functional by cycling up and down to meet their um uh, their capacity on the grid. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, essentially, wind and solar would not really work at all without natural gas backing them. So one of the, the issues that's associated with that is the intermittency, but it happens quickly. So you can have wind turbines producing energy or electricity, and then if the wind dies off, suddenly they're not producing anything and you can lose electricity supply within you know, a few short minutes. And one of the aspects of the electrical grid is that it has to maintain a continuous supply of electricity to meet the demand at that specific time. And so you need to be able to ramp up or lower down quickly. And the other sources, as useful as they are, like nuclear and coal, they don't ramp as quickly uh, or as well. You can actually have you know physical damage done to some of the plants if you try to ramp a nuclear plant really quickly, or if you try to ramp a big coal plant quickly. At least the older designs of coal plants. And then the the really one of the areas where natural gas fits in best, kind of a almost like a niche market where it's is load following or it's its ability to with uh, a simple cycle turbine turn on very quickly and go up to 100% capacity within you know like under 5 to 10 minutes there are other types of um of technologies they're called rice engines the reciprocating internal combustion engines which burn natural gas that can do it you know as quickly as your car can because they're basically the same technology so they can go from zero to 100% in under a minute. And that makes it possible to deal with that intermittency, the just the inherent unreliability of wind and solar. So if you lose them quickly, then you've got natural gas kind of backing everything up. And if it weren't for natural gas, wind and solar wouldn't work. And you will hear people say, look, we're we're building batteries and all that sort of thing. But if you look at the work done by people like Bjorn Lomborg and Mark Mills, the, and read the stuff that they've written about batteries, if you took all of the world's batteries and said, okay, we're going to back up our electrical system, Bjorn Lomborg, I believe, said that all of the world's batteries would power the world's electrical system for something like three minutes. So... That, that's not a realistic solution right now, and given their cost, it's even less realistic. so you need natural gas really providing that that consistent flow of electricity that without it, we'd just be seeing like you know the lights come on and then they'd go off and on and off and on and off, and really wouldn't be a tenable situation,
1: yeah, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to understand and to realize that that is how the electrical grid works um, people forget that the the electricity has to be supplied at the moment that you want to use it. It can't be kept in reserve. It can't nothing like that works. And I think sort of in the abstract way that most people view the electrical grid, they kind of just think that, Oh, there's this big store of electricity here and I just take from it when I want some. Um, and that's just not the way that it works. And so, um, One of the most immediate ways to kind of get that aha moment from people is just to explain this intermittency problem and to explain how the grid works.
3: Yeah, matching supply to demand at this level, when you consider the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people that are relying on this, it's really a miracle of modern technology. And so the notion that we can just, you know, kind of fantasize our way to, well, we'll just use wind and solar okay, well, that's not actually the way that physics works. So, yeah, you're exactly right, Paige, that this is an amazing technological development. It's really bordering on a miracle. And to pretend that that intermittent and unreliable weather-dependent sources can fill all of that need is, is yeah, a little nonsensical. You
2: know, Paige, I think... Um... Perhaps a follow-up to your question or another way of looking at it is the fact that um, I don't think most Americans realize that energy, energy production, energy use is a little over a trillion dollar part of the U.S. economy. So just energy, uh, if it were a free and independent country, you know, the size and scope of the energy industry in the United States it would make it a top 15 country in the world. That's how much GDP energy uh, generates or about 4.7% of U.S. GDP, which is huge. That's an incredible statistic. And the second point to note is that today, for the discussion you and uh, Jason were just having, the thing that's important to note is that Only 20% of our energy today is being produced by renewables. And in many cases, the reason why it's not growing faster is not to mention the subsidies that, that allow it to grow to what it has, but the storage capacity is not there. The reliability is not there. And so we don't have good alternatives for petroleum, for natural gas, for nuclear Uh, and, and the point that we try to make in the paper is none of us are opposed to renewable energy and all of us want the cleanest, best planet that we can have, but we've made tremendous progress in reducing America's carbon footprint largely due to natural gas and the point is let the market process it gets place, maybe by 2050 or 2060, we'll be able to have uh, 40% of all vehicles easy. Part of her argument is we're just not ready to move all into renewable energy. And quite frankly, we're not celebrating the track record of success with natural gas, especially regarding uh, the U.S.
1: carbon footprint. Definitely. And it's it's incredibly difficult to move forward in a direction of technological innovation that's better for the planet if we can't keep the lights on. We can't develop new technologies that work and that do incredible things if people are worried about keeping their family warm all winter. And I think that um, in America especially and in most of the world lately, um, we've had so much energy prosperity that we've forgotten that it's not the default state. Um, it is far from it, actually. It's so incredibly difficult. And the technological dance that has to take place to deliver that electricity to you at the moment you need it is so complex that undermining that system in any way can lead to just catastrophic results, yeah, the That's biggest totally part
3: right. of that is is um, like Tim said, let the market do do its job because that's something that the market is extremely good at. So the when you have government kind of push its way in and choose picking winners and losers, then what happens is <clears throat> what I discussed in the initial uh, answer to the, the question, what you see happening in Europe or what is happening regularly, like every summer in California, where you're having their electrical system is pushed right to the brink or to the point of breaking and they have to do um rolling blackouts you saw the same thing happen in texas in february 21 when they had that massive blackout that took out much of the entire state for four or five days you saw you know uh, the the texas government the texas comptroller admits that over 211 people died some are saying over 700 people died as a result of this, um, You know, the, not only because of the cold, but because people were trying to heat their home and had carbon monoxide poisoning or other issues associated with that extreme cold spell and the lack of reliable, affordable electricity that was available for them. So government gets in and starts monkeying around and confusing price signals that are set by market forces and you start having this, this issue where reliable and affordable sources like um, fossil fuels and nuclear are no longer affordable uh, because the wind and solar are being supported by government uh, and also as we've written in other uh, articles and op-eds and that talking about the paper, but the, the, the fact that we rely on countries like China to provide a lot of the solar panels and the components of our wind turbines and and that sort of thing. Some of those countries, China notably, don't have as good of environmental regulations. They don't have the same level of labor regulations. They don't have protections. For another example, the cobalt that's produced in the Congo, there's a lot of problems with children being forced to go down into mines uh, they don't have the same intellectual property rights protections that we do so the the state go- or sorry the the federal government uh, department of state is um putting in restrictions and tariffs actually to protect and has published warnings for any company that wants to operate in china they said basically the theft of intellectual property is rampant in china so beware so you've got companies that are trying to compete against lax environmental regulations, um, you know, problems with labor regulations, intellectual property issues, and also the Chinese government subsidizes its uh, renewable energy production very heavily. And then the biggest one dealing with China is the fact that they have literally enslaved over two million. Uyghurs, Kazakhs uh Huis and and other groups and forced them to make solar panels for them so when you're competing against this then you can see okay well this is an actual competition the reason that some of these Technologies the prices are so low is for reasons like that okay you're not actually competing these are not free market situations so the these these companies are that are promoting wind and solar can come into a market like texas or michigan or or wherever and they can undercut the prices for the for what they're selling what they're producing their electricity they produce is less expensive because of these conditions okay well again you're not actually competing and what's happening is the intermittent unreliable sources are able to undercut the price and put reliable affordable sources out of business and so again this isn't free markets and it's not true competition but it's causing us to to really have problems with the reliability of the energy sources that for the past half hour we've been saying look how important these things are to our lives okay well we're imposing situations by letting government monkey around in these markets like this that are taking away the reliability of these essential energy resources. That's dangerous. And it's in, you know, when you're dealing with those other things that I talked about, child labor, slavery, all that, that's just fundamentally immoral on top of it.
1: Exactly. Um, And there's just, there's just so many ways in which that's true too. Um, Like the lack of a true levelized cost of electricity is another thing that contributes to making wind and solar seem more competitive than they are. The fact that, um, as we talked about earlier, natural gas provides this essential service to the grid in being able to ramp up to meet the the demand of wind and solar at the cost of both its own capacity factor and to additional wear and tear on those facilities um, that is in no way compensated by the grid and makes those more expensive per megawatt produced um, in a way that's not, you know, counted when it's, when it comes to be accounting season.
3: Yeah, you're starting to speak my language. If you're <laughs> if you're talking about levelized cost of electricity and capacity factors, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go that that far into it. But yes, that's exactly right. Wind and solar do not have the same level of capacity factor. And so for example, in Michigan in January and February, we have solar capacity factors drop to six to seven percent so that means 93 94 of the time you have to provide that backup energy which is what natural gas we already talked about is good for but like why are you investing in a in a energy production facility that only produces like not even 10 percent of the time this does not make sense because you end up building that same production facility even if you are really generous and said, okay, we'll just take the average capacity factor for solar in Michigan is 16%, maybe 17 on a good year. Okay. So the rest of the time, 83% solar is not producing anything. Okay. So you have to build that solar facility three or four times just to meet the same, uh, nameplate capacity okay well now what are we talking about in terms of cost well it's it's suddenly not that cheap then add in the fact that that solar system only lasts for somewhere between 10 and 25 years compared to a coal plant or a gas plant which lasts 45 to 60 years or a nuclear plant which lasts 80 to 100 years okay now you're having to take that solar system that you had to build four times and now you're having to build it times four more times so you're you're the note that people say well lcoe of solar has dropped to the point where coal can't compete with it or gas can't compete with it or nuclear can't compete with it it's like well that's only if you consider life at the bus bar if you look at where the electricity is coming out of the plant and that's it okay, then sure, solar is cheaper, again, taking into account the subsidies and all that sort of stuff. But when you actually stand back and look at what are the true costs to the entire system, suddenly solar, no way are they?
1: Exactly. You'll be taking that those unrecyclable solar panels to uh, a toxic waste facility four times while that 80 year old nuclear power plant still chugging away producing more energy at a higher capacity factor
3: right you haven't even considered yet despite those other costs that i talked about how how does recycling these things now or even just taking them out of the ground and shipping them to a landfill how does that impact on the lcoe because We've actually done work and had I had an intern that I had a few years ago actually email our big utilities, Consumers Energy and DTE, and ask them, what are your plans for dealing with these solar panels that you're planning to build at year 15 or year 20 or year 25? When you start ripping them out of the ground, what are you going to do with them? The response came back, right now we don't have a plan for that and we're going to work through that. Okay. Try to build a nuclear plant without a plan for decommissioning. Try to build a coal mine or a coal plant yeah. without a plan for decommissioning, and see where that gets you.
1: You will be laughed out of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or FERC, if you right. even attempt something uh, like that. Like it's it's a laughable concept. They would never let you. And right. um, it's not as though carbon fiber and heavy metals that are used to make, uh, you know, the solar panels or the wind turbines can go to a normal landfill Correct. or can go yep. to a cheap landfill.
3: People They're are going concerned to an incredibly
1: expensive facility.
3: Yeah, exactly. So people are concerned about leachate from uh, coal ash, for example. Okay, what about leachate from 100 million solar arrays? Okay, well, they all contain a variety of different... Like uh selenium I mean pick pick your favorite toxic metal that you wouldn't want to have coming out of coal ash. Well, those exist in solar panels as well. And as soon as those panels get cracked and broken in a landfill, guess what's coming out of them
1: yeah, I think I think sometimes uh people want pretty solutions rather rather than functional ones. And a lot of the times, wind and solar feels like a very pretty solution. It feels like a green way to solve this important problem. And there are so many components of it that people don't quite understand and that at the surface level aren't visible that once you get down into it, you realize there are other ways to solve the problem that actually work and actually have better outcomes. and sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Right. <laughs> well,
2: and, and you know, if, if you uh, if you if you go down the beaten path a little bit, and and try to analyze the impact of our discussion on the general economy, and you think about the fact that just um, you know, the the F F1 one Lightning, F one fifty Lightning pickup truck that Ford is producing, uh, that's going to be an EV, the EV version is almost double the weight of the ice the internal combustion engine version and so we haven't even talked about all the uh wear and tear on the road that will take place with uh electric vehicles in general which weigh a lot more than ICE vehicles uh we haven't uh we haven't talked about the uh the ability to look at the cost of regulation and then analyze the fact that the cost of generating electricity or or producing gasoline in, in some of these instances are directly related to more and more regulation or higher taxes. Now then look at the impact that inflation is is having on these things. So on top of the discussion that we've already had, these things are being exacerbated by inflation And, you know, the federal government said, oh, inflation is just transitory in April of 2021. And now the Federal Reserve said yesterday that they don't think we're going to get inflation back to 2% until sometime early in 2024. So that's just another additive negative to all the things that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, so we've talked a lot about the benefits of uh, of natural gas here and some of the challenges that it faces in terms of public policy. The final section of the paper includes lessons for North America. So, uh, my last question for you guys: you know, what should policymakers be focused on when it comes to energy policy, um, especially as it pertains to natural gas? Because obviously, you know, I, I think everyone. <laughs> on uh on here knows that you know we don't have a free market in energy uh there's distortions and subsidies all over the place uh what are some changes that you guys would like to see uh in terms of uh public policy and you no know, Jason, you work mostly at the state level in Michigan there um if you wanna just talk about the state even uh too um uh please by all means,
3: yeah, one of the biggest things that we're dealing with right now is. Again, going back to the early discussion, what what are the energy impacts on the real lives of everyday people? Okay, we're getting close in Michigan to seeing those same kind of impacts because our big utilities have agreed to uh, meet net zero CO2 emission targets by 2040 and 2050. So their plan to meet those targets is to close down reliable electricity generation and to build solar and wind. We already talked about what does solar look like in Michigan, in especially the winter. So when it's negative 10, negative 20 degrees in Michigan, we're relying on solar panels, which have a 6% capacity factor. That's bordering on dangerous if it's not outright dangerous. So at the state level, when, when, utilities have their big long-term plans their 20-year plans approved it's called an integrated resource plan part of the the question that they have to answer is is our plan both reasonable and prudent okay it's neither reasonable nor prudent to shut down reliable electricity generation and to go to a system that relies on solar with a six percent capacity factor now they'll point to their modeling and they'll say, no, our modeling shows that we can make this work. Okay, well, that's the same kind of modeling that runs the the climate models that we're all freaked out about, which uh, other climate scientists like uh, Roy Spencer, University of Alabama at Huntsville have said those climate models run hot. They have, uh, Judith Curry did another paper that talked about, you know, 45% overage on their their uh, estimations of the equilibrium climate sensitivity so these are the same kind of modeling software runs that give us our climate models they're the the same kind of models that Europe relied on to justify shutting down their reliable electricity generation and we already discussed what's happening in Europe prices over 600 uh, euros per megawatt hour people, literally forced to you know huddle in rooms my wife my wife follows this uh house designer on instagram and they just spent a whole bunch of money on a house that they own in london building on an extension Mm -hmm. and making it extremely pretty and all that sort of thing and then they posted that they can't afford to heat the extension so they just basically shut it off this they said it was going to cost something like two thousand euros 2800 euros a month to heat that extension so, okay, now they're huddled in front of a fireplace in their small London flat, trying to stay warm. Okay, this is what's happening when you have these um these big utilities here, and it's they're planning it right now in Michigan. They haven't shut down some of the plants, although they just this this may shut down the Palisades nuclear plant, which interestingly produced more clean. Emission free electricity than all of the state's wind and solar put together in 2021. But yet, our plan is to close down clean, reliable nuclear plants that already exist, are already built, already being paid for, and replace it with more expensive, less reliable solar. So, at the state level, this is what we're facing it's getting to the point of being dangerous. And people shouldn't just, you know, slough it off and go, Oh, well, I'm I'm sure the the utilities will be fine. Like they do this for a living, right? They know what they're doing. No, the utilities are focused on return on equity, they get a 10% guaranteed return from the ratepayer. And if the ratepayer will pay them to build solar, they will build solar. If the ratepayer pays them to build something else, they will build something else. I've listened to utility executives tell me to my face that they're energy agnostic, okay? They don't care how they produce their electricity. They care about making a return for their shareholders. And that's the big thing that they're doing. So, you know, if that unfortunately leaves people in Michigan in the cold and the dark, well, you know, our modeling show it would work. And the Public Service Commission approved it. So it's not like it's our fault, right? No, this is dangerous and increasingly dangerous. And people should be aware of what's coming up in front of them.
2: You know, I, I think, Alex, uh, on top of it, at the national level, it would be good for uh, people to know more, uh, in a more obvious way the kinds of taxes that are, that are being levied at the federal level on, on energy. I remember um my wife is from western New York so we would drive through Ontario from Michigan uh to get to Buffalo and I remember uh, this would be in the late uh, the early, early to mid 80s when we had the very high uh, gasoline prices and the uh uh some of the Canadian gasoline uh retailers had these bar charts on the uh the side of the gas pump and it would read Local tax on a imperial gallon of gasoline, provincial tax, national tax, international tax, and uh, manufacturing tax, and and so you began to see that about eighty percent of what you were paying was taxation, and and people uh, began to uh, rebel against that, and unfortunately the solution. In Ontario, was to remove the tax bars and make it illegal to put that taxation on on the pump. So I think more uh, open discussion of taxation, and then you know just uh, yesterday, uh, HKSB, the largest bank in Europe, just announced that they are going to be stopping any loans for drilling for oil and natural gas pipelines, and uh, refineries in Europe, the United States, and, and globally. I think this is something that the U.S. government is pushing very hard in the United States, and you, you hope that more informed consumers, and uh, at least I uh, thought Jamie Dimon's response when testifying before Congress, when he said that J.P. Morgan Chase would not implement those types of Uh, uh, regulatory moves and would continue to uh, support drilling and exploration. I I think we need more courage to oppose some of these uh, public policy initiatives so that um, we're still funding the entrepreneurs that are uh, creating these miracles such as uh, hydraulic fracturing in the U.S.
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And luckily, we're starting to hopefully see the tide shift a little bit. I think on on ESG and the way that some of these banks are approaching things, uh, with the news of uh, Vanguard pulling out of uh, um, right. Jason, maybe you can help me. I forget the name of the. Uh, it, it wasn't a UN sustainability thing. It was a uh, was it a ESG? I was
3: ZAMF. I'm I'm forgetting what the what the acronym stands for, but it's Z A M F uh yeah Anyways, i forgot yeah. but yeah they were pulling away from their esg uh being part of that yeah group. it was a commitment
0: so. or something yeah so great guys so uh page do you have any last questions for them
3: nope i think
1: we
0: covered it all where can people go to find the paper and uh where can people go to find your guys's work
3: i'll let tim start
0: well the the paper can be found on the McNair website at Northwood University. So if you just
2: go to uh, www.northwood.edu and uh, go to our McNair Center, you can find it on our website. It's also on the uh, Mackinac Center's website. And uh, and we also, as as Jason noted, uh, he and I've co-authored a, a number of articles on, uh, on the study uh, that have been in the Hill that have been uh, published in town hall. Um, uh, the houston chronicle published one of our, our articles so there's a there's a long 66 page study and there's some good uh some uh, summations of the study in places like the hill the town hall and uh the houston chronicle
0: yeah and i'll uh be sure to include those op-eds in the notes our guests today have been jason hayes and dr tim nash thank you guys for joining us today
3: Thanks for having us on. Thank you.